Welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. Hey everybody and welcome to the very first episode of Health Tech Pigeon, the podcast. My name is James and I've been in health tech a very long time. I found my way very much into the media space within health tech. I've written for Forbes on health tech. I interview health tech leaders and entrepreneurs on the health tech podcast. I started Somex, a health tech media company with Jessica, who's going to be one of our regular co-hosts. And of course, started the Health Tech Pigeon newsletter a couple of years ago. And if you're listening to this, you'll probably read that. One thing I've learned about content and media is that everybody likes to absorb things differently. And so whilst our newsletter has thousands of subscribers, this podcast is going to widen that reach even more and give you an extra level of analysis that you don't quite get in the newsletter. So we are very excited to bring you our take on the week's news stories. My regular co-hosts will be Jessica and Henry. They'll say hi in a second. And in a few episodes time, we're going to be bringing on journalists, VCs, podcasters, entrepreneurs, execs, basically anyone with quite a strong opinion on health tech to make this interesting. And if you want to register your interest as a guest to come on here, there's a link in the description of this episode. And so on to my co-hosts. Allow me to introduce, first of all, Jessica. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm co-founder of Somex, and my background is in healthcare and health tech communications, working everywhere from in-house teams at the NHS and the Royal College of Physicians to big global agencies. Thanks, Jess. And Henry? Hi, I'm Henry. I'm the Associate Director here at Somex. Uh, my background's in journalism and for the last five, six years in health tech. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. So let's get into the stories. So story number one, so Psyomics, a mental health technology startup, have raised 2.4 million in a push to expand access to their online mental health platform. So plenty of mental health companies around. Why is this interesting? What do they want to do differently? Henry, Jess, talk to me about this story. I think firstly, anyone raising any money right now deserves a big <laughs> pat on the back. So well done. Definitely. The mental health backlog's like 1.6 million people, and that's just the people who are in, in the funnel, so to speak. That's probably not the word I'm looking for, but I think the actual stats say there's like 8 million people waiting for mental health treatment. That's a huge, huge problem. It's absurd. It's not, it's not sustainable. So anything that can help to mitigate that's amazing news. Like, it's almost weird that there hasn't been a solid mental health-specific triage platform to do this. You saw, like, we all saw the long-term plan kind of leak piece this morning. And that, again, for the long-term plan, doesn't make explicit reference to mental health, which is disappointing. So the fact that Simex's investors see the value in being able to free up space on mental health waiting lists is fantastic. And I, I think they're going to have, I hope they're going to have a lot of success because it's a huge problem that arguably we're not doing enough about. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that, as you say, there are actually a lot of kind of mental health solutions out there. But I think a lot of them are leaning more towards the kind of wellness end of the spectrum and empowering people to look after their own mental health. But I think what I like about Psyomics is the fact that actually they're dealing with some of the most severe cases of mental health and also supporting, therefore, clinicians to be able to deal with that more quickly and in a more personalized way. And I think also we talk a lot about, you know, personalized medicine, person-centered care, but that doesn't quite seem to have made its way to mental health yet. So this feels like an early mover in that space. And just echoing what Henry said, I think it's 
nice to see that there are some raises coming through during these tough times. And I think one thing that we're all definitely hearing is that actually, you know, despite it being fantastic when founders are raising money right now, I think CEOs and, you know, senior teams of startups are starting to think very seriously about actually what that investment now means, rather than just, yay, we've raised, you know, let's spend big, grow fast. Actually, they're having to be really considered about what they are doing with that money and what that means in order to set them up for their next fundraise, because no one actually knows when those next fundraisers are going to be. No one knows when this is going to get easier. And so I think not only are people approaching how they secure funding quite differently, but I think they're looking at how they use that funding in, in quite a different way to what we've seen before. I think you're right. It is, it's bold, isn't it? I think there's, there's so many, as you say, mental health companies and solutions at that more wellness end. I think it is bold, and I mean that in a very positive way, for a company like this to be saying we genuinely want to help closer to the front line and actually we're willing and able to go through what we need to in order to do that. And I think that's probably why this made it in right Henry yeah you know when you're looking through and we read what like 30 40 50 raised stories every week mm. there were there were bigger sums of money this week you know there, there's 20 million euros gone to a, a Belgian startup who do something very different there's there's loads of different raised stories around but mental health gets a lot of as Jeff said like there's a lot of talk about wellness there's a lot of that end of that spectrum and to be this close to clinicians and this close to patients it's just, it's really good to see a raise in that area. Awesome. Good company, good raise. Let's see what happens. On to story number two. Uh, so this is the, this is the whopper, isn't it? I suppose. Uh, whopper in terms of sums of money, whopper in terms of big health tech names. United Health picking up UK health tech company Emis for one point five billion dollars outrageous sum of money outrageously large companies what does this mean for health tech what does this mean for innovation what does this mean for primary care talk to me big story right yeah it's a huge story isn't it like that's an absurd amount of money there's always concern when u.s consortiums come in and pick up uk health tech companies like emis have been have been sat in leeds since the late 80s i think but united health have been in uk health tech for probably the best part of 20 years now so it's not one of those kind of swooping in by an insurer pieces that tend to get people's backs up emis is by far the market leader i think they're like 55 60 percent of um of gp practices use emis and they've been integrated with system one since like 2014 2015 so they've got a very good stranglehold almost on that market the money surprises me it's like a almost 50 percent uh premium on their closing share price the day before which is it's a fairly big premium and i'm also surprised that they've gone down i think you know the the board are going to recommend to shareholders that they accept this um maybe because that price isn't not insane but large but i didn't think they were going in this direction like they bought they bought dovetail in like 2018 who are a health tech blockchain company dovetail lab sorry health chain uh, health tech blockchain company i thought they were going to move more into secondary care and then looking at how you can join up primary care and secondary care on under like an ics umbrella so 
I'm excited to see what United House plan for it are. Let's wait and see before we jump to any conclusions. I'd still like us to do a bit of ideation here. So what, what, do, you, what do you think this means for innovation? Because what, uh, I mean, the question's loaded in some ways because I've been party to some conversations with entrepreneurs that are actually quite excited about this because innovation, not to say it's been stifled by any individual person or company, but the thought of United Health coming in has got some entrepreneurs excited that this might enable some more innovation. United clearly being seen as an enabler more so. Uh, and Emus coming in underneath that, they're, they're seeing this progression in terms of what this might mean for interoperability and, and things like that. Is that an opinion you share? Is that a, an optimism you share, Henry? I think if you... If you go to Comfort Expo next year and you find anyone who works in primary care sales and you just kind of sneak up behind them and whisper, does it integrate with Emis uh, in their ear, you can watch the colour drain from their face in real time. <laughs> integration, you know, Matt Gould, when he launched NHSX a few years ago, like integration, he said it like 40 times in his speech. It's a huge problem. And sometimes legacy tech providers are not necessarily the best at that. If you have market stranglehold, if you've got the predominant market share, why do the integration, right? Build it yourself and then sell it on. So I hope that United Health's kind of background in doing more innovative, more integrated pieces will come to the fore. Um, that would certainly be a, a huge boon for primary care and in getting that data crucially out of primary care into secondary care or into other services. Absolutely. Big news for UK health tech. Uh, United about to buy Emis. On to story number three. So the third story this week is, I suppose, worryingly, Moby Health News have reported a study from the Journal of Medical Internet Research that concludes, and I'm reading verbatim here, that many digital health startups lack clinical trials and regulatory filings. So get this, the study states that the digital health sector has experienced rapid growth over the past decade. Agree. However, Healthcare technology stakeholders lack a comprehensive understanding of clinical robustness and claims across the industry. Now, that is a very bold and concerning claim. And going back to my medical school days and my statistics module or junior doctor, how to read a paper, if that's taught me anything, it's this. The devil's in the detail of the method when it comes to a study like this. So before drawing any conclusions... I always ask myself, how did, how did they calculate this? Well, they got 224 companies that targeted prevention, diagnostics, or treatment. And they looked at data from Rock Health, the US FDA, and the US National Library of Medicine, as you can tell, they're 224 US companies, and found absolutely no correlation between clinical robustness, which they define, and clinical claims, which they define. That is concerning. Any thoughts, guys? Yeah, I think it's not a surprise. I'm not shocked by it. It's, it's not a great story. It's worrying data, but it's not surprising. I think we talk about this a lot, that right now, health tech in particular is very much a wild west for a number of reasons. And as it stands, there's no consistency in terms of regulation that demands this level of clinical validity. But I think that also means that the legislation isn't in place to demand that. And I think that 
startups can often be built on good ideas and perhaps don't often get clinical input early on. But also, I think that people can be put off by clinical research and clinical trials because it can, for startups especially, they can be, be perceived to be really expensive. They don't have to be. I think, as you say, James, the, the devil is in the detail and I think it's all in the method. But interestingly, I think there are some incredible startups coming through that are actually addressing these problems that are going to make it better for health tech solutions, for medicines and that kind of thing to actually access clinical trials quickly. So be able to get to a result more quickly, get a high quality result. So working with diverse ranges of people, because we also know that that's a problem in clinical trials and do it in a cost effective way. And so the likes of Nucre, you know, they're looking at how they can really focus patient recruitment and make that part of the process quick, effective and cheap without compromising on the quality of the the end result. Um, and I think that is something that, you know, needs to be A, not just talked about, but B, you know, embraced far more readily. And I, I think also that there's, there's no one policing this stuff. Uh, to an extent, these, these companies can say what they want and there's, there's really no consequence. Um, and so right now, the only real policing is around people's own ethics and morals. Um, and so until there is some kind of legislation, and it's unlikely to be at global level, it's always global recommendations, national implementation, I, I don't really see this, this changing a great deal. I would like it to, I would really like it to, but I, I think it, it starts with, with that policy piece. So I don't know if my opinion on this is is controversial. It's certainly not informed, but I, th- I think there's there's balance, right? No one wants to see stuff getting to patients without it being clinically properly clinically validated, like having gone through all the necessary necessary steps, whether that's DTAC, whether it's any other framework. But there's balance. There's this amazing McKinsey report from last year that talks about how like health tech and life science companies in Europe and the UK fail to bridge the gap from research and clinical validation to commercialization compared to the US. The US creates less than half the clinically validated papers than the UK does, but they smash the commercialization part, right? China only does a third of what Europe and the UK do. So I don't know whether that's like a mentality thing or an approach thing, but I often wonder if we get caught in the regulatory, calling the research, the clinical, which is no, it's not a bad thing, but at the expense of getting it to patients, like there has to be a balance, there has to be a cutoff, at which point you say, we've done X number of studies, we are happy that this is clinically validated, let's help people, rather than being like, let's do one more. There's a balance, I don't know where that is, but there, there has to be a balance. Also, I think that part of the problem is that part of what we also see is that clinical trials, as you rightly say, Henry, often look quite different to commercial scale. And so the processes that are being used at commercial scale, whether that's by a pharmaceutical company or a health tech startup, means that actually the the clinical trial that's being done, because the process looks so different at commercial scale, the two don't actually correlate. And so there's a really tenuous clinical validation. So sometimes even where you do have that, it's actually, it's more of a tick box than it is actual proof that patients are going to be treated safely and appropriately and that's not that's not a criticism I think it's an issue with the process but I think that you know that there has to be some way of looking at how we can 
as you as you say, you know, run clinical trials are reflective of what's going to be happening when it's out in the market. That's probably where real world evidence comes in. It's a really interesting article, this, and I think based on what you've both said as well, that we've got to remember this is a US based study, and. To your point, Henry, about the UK versus the US and the US getting the commercialization right and the UK leaning more on the regulatory side and less good at the commercial stuff. I mean, it's a, it's it's perhaps a stereotype, but it's also, you know, it, this is part of that evidence base. I wonder what this would like look like in the UK if they did this similar study. Again, it's interesting if you want to I suppose, interrogate their definitions of clinical robustness and clinical claims, that kind of stuff. But as I say, I think it would be very, very interesting to have a look at a very similar study for the UK and then see what each geography can learn from each other and go down that route. I think that would be, uh, if anybody listening wants to have a go at that, we would be delighted to report that in Pigeon uh, (laughs) in a few months' time. But yeah, my opinion, I guess, is that Hugh Harvey's been calling a lot of this out, hasn't he? Founder of Hardy and Health, ex-consultant radiologist, very much in the AI game and regulatory game and helping startups through that with his consultancy. And I think something that he has said, which which chimes with me, is that if if the knowledge isn't at the investment level to pick up these discrepancies in, let's say, both, right, the regulatory side and the commercial side, is this startup in front of me able to get regulated and be sold? And is this startup commercial enough to be a good offering to be sold? You can argue the VCs are very good at the latter more generally. But if they're not as good at picking it up more clinically for that clinical robustness and regulatory side, companies will continue to get investment that have no hope of selling. And that is a risk. It weakens our space. It shows that there are less returns to that investment. And that's why... I think specific health tech VCs are so important and more and more and more of them are popping up now and more and more people within the more generalist firms are turning into you know specialist sectors within that firm and that kind of thing. But I think it is just incredibly important um, that there are people that can have a view of this whole system and critically appraise properly because if we give money to the wrong companies, we're just going to exacerbate this problem. On to the fourth story. So another US-based story that I'm sure has global learnings and so very, very worth a discussion here. A publication called People of Colour in Tech has reported that a pregnancy app to support black mothers called, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Wolomi, has launched. And so why black mothers specifically? Well, Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. And there's evidence that black women go unseen and unheard as they go through and navigate the healthcare system. Here's the worrying bit. There's a growing consensus that racial discrimination has much to do with it. And one woman trying to change things is Leo George, the founder of Wolomi. And it's described as a pregnancy companion app created by a woman of color for women of color. And it gives access to mental health experts, events, and a community of amazing women. So it's pretty emotive, this. Uh, One side of my family is African, so this stuff really hits home for me. And it's, it's hard for me to believe that 
these stats are real in this day and age. I can remember giving a talk at London Business School the other day and talking about the the new book that's come out by, I believe, a medical student or junior doctor called Mind the Gap, uh, a book specifically talking about, and again, sort of first of its kind, really, a, a, a book showing dermatological presentations in black people because we are predominantly taught about dermatology you know, skin conditions in white people. And so the fact that even a book on dermatology for black people is, is, is some massive innovation is, is, is hard to believe in this day and age year, however you want to describe that. But I don't know, guys, have you got thoughts on this? I'm really excited that it's one that we've included in Pigeon. And I think it's a really, really important topic that does not get enough discussion. And I think for the past couple of years now, I've been seeing numerous articles popping up talking about the racial disparity in care for particularly women of color and their experience of care and the impact that that is having on their lives and loss of life ultimately and I think it's it's horrifying it really is horrifying but I think first of all it's really important that we're talking about it and it's recognized that this is an issue and actually it's it's a systemic issue first and foremost and I think that's the thing. I think this this solution is fantastic and it's exciting to see that it's unlike a lot of other, particularly femtech uh, solutions, rather than being created by a white man or a co-founding team of white men, there is actually a woman of colour for women of colour. And for me, that's really heartening. But the question I think still remains that it's an incredible solution and it's so needed. However, the onus is still very much on the on the mother, on that on the woman. And I think whilst this is a really great step forward, that system, those systemic issues still remain. And I think we, we now need to talk about this much more seriously at a service level about health inequity and actually the impact of racism at that systemic le- level on patient outcomes and people's quality of lives because it's not going away. And I think especially, you know, not to make this political, but in the economic environment we're in and the impact we're seeing on people's lives, I think this is not this is not going away. This is a problem on a macro level that is only getting bigger. So, yeah, you, you can't say many good things about COVID, right? But I think one of the one of the things that has come out of it is uh, a, a more appropriate level of focus on the disparity in healthcare based around kind of both race and gender. Like if you look at the BMA's report into the doctors who died from COVID, I think they only specified doctors. It's like 85% were from ethnic minority backgrounds. The more focus we can put on these issues, the better. And the more that we can create technology that empowers people who are impacted by these issues the better and as you say just completely rightly like it's it's amazing to see the founders being kind of quote unquote the right people like three percent of of tech founders are black i think it is we need to have more technology that is appropriately addressing issues built around and built by the people who are affected by those issues Mm. yeah i think with ai as well like Part of the problem is that when when you have a very undiverse selection of people who are creating these solutions, it it doesn't create a, a health equity in 
in any way, shape or form. And I think, you know, your example there, James, of the, the that book, Mind the Gap, you know, AI is often trained on clinical data that has been, that is studies on generally white men and therefore doesn't pick up, you know, whether it's, um, you know, health conditions, perhaps, if it's diagnostic AI, that are are in a more diverse cohort of people outside that very specific demographic. Um, so it's, I think, it's such a big issue that it spans so many different things across healthcare. But if we're not careful, it also is, and it is beginning to seep its way into the technology solutions we are, we are looking to use and integrating into mainstream healthcare. I was going to say that in Pigeon 93, there's uh, there's two great links to um, bits around the, the bit that a Jess just referenced, the AI piece. New York Times did a really good piece on racism in AI um, in 2021, I want to say. Um, and there was a study that was released about kind of racism in AI this year, which is based on a Lancet study, all the articles based on a Lancet study, that is, is well worth seeking out if you go to the 93rd episode of Pigeon. Awesome, awesome. All available on the Health Tech Pigeon website. <laughs> Good plug, yeah. All available on healthtechpigeon.com. Um, yeah, it's it's super important. One thing that I just want to raise about this as well is that towards the end of the article, uh, it talks about Leo George, the founder. And there's a really interesting bit for me uh, that it says this, as a quality improvement specialist, at the District of Columbia Primary Care Association, Leo led 15 healthcare centers through value-based practice transformation and oral health primary care integration. This is somebody who knows how to get things done on the ground floor. This is someone who has led transformational mm. change. One of the big problems with this type of technology, solution, app, whatever you, you know, companion app, Adoption's always a big issue. We could spend another four hours talking about it. All I want to say is not only is this a woman of colour building something for women of colour, it is also someone who knows extremely well how to get things done. This is someone extremely qualified to do this, extremely well informed, extremely well connected into the community for whom this affects and has the knowledge and skill to make a significant contribution with this health tech company. I hope she is extremely successful. And with that background, I suspect she might just be. And if nothing else, I'm glad that we've shone a light on it in this episode. So, Final story in Pigeon this week. Genomics England have done a pilot release of 324 genomes. Now, I saw this on LinkedIn and I don't have a huge amount of context. I am not a genomics, genetics, epigenetics expert. However, people do seem to be getting very excited and very informed people in the know seem to be getting very excited about this. It seems to me to be a step on the path to being able to use all consented genomic medicine service cases in a research environment. So long story short, what this sounds like is a lot of innovation consensually with data could be about to happen. 
Any thoughts, team? To be honest, I find this area incredibly interesting. And I think there is a lot of excitement in the space already. And I think this is one more thing that is going to contribute to, as you say, James, I think quite a leap forwards in terms of the innovation we've seen so far. Um, I think with that, a lot of people are starting to throw around the words like words like curative. No one really talks about cure and that kind of thing in a very clear way when it comes to serious health conditions. And I think for people who are very ingrained in the science, they really understand the science to be talking in that way. I think it's something that we should all definitely be sitting up and listening to. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing, like, I think it's going to be a catalyst. I don't, I think it, in itself it's exciting, but I think what, what it unlocks is going to be more exciting further down the line. Um, and I think, you know, genetic therapy, cell therapies, they're all very expensive right now. And I hope that moves like this are a, another step forward towards making expensive therapies and expensive diagnostics as well far more accessible to more patients and therefore more patients being able to access what people are calling these curative therapies and treatments that for me is really exciting yeah it was it was it was weird uh the middle of this week opening twitter up and seeing sort of genetics twitter had exploded all, all, all seven of them um like that there's a huge amount of excitement here right and I, I have sort of two questions, right? So my general understanding is that they're releasing the 324, 25 genomes initially, right? How and to whom? So is this like a nationally accessible library that anyone who wants to build stuff can go into, can plug into, can pull data out of? How are we validating it all? To go back to an earlier point in, in this week's pigeon. And like, yeah, who can get access to it? Like I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear from anyone in that space as to why they're so excited because i'm not going to lie reading some of those tweets it was it was acronym heavy and i'd love to hear from someone in in that space about why why this is such a big deal and also how they're going to use that data what they think the next year three years five years whatever looks like so Everybody listening, that was a roundup of this week's health tech news. If you want to hear more or read more, should I say, uh, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com to read the newsletter, which all this news appears in, as well as to have a look at all our back catalogue. Henry referenced some of our previous ones. You can have a look at health tech news gone by. And crucially, you will get the one minute health tech roundup into your inbox every single Sunday if you subscribe. Um, thank you to my co-hosts, Henry and Jessica, for this week. It's been wonderful to have you all on episode one. Looking forward to episode two. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on LinkedIn. We will stick our LinkedIn's in the description of this episode. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Cheers.